0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. The study of genetics, how people pass certain traits from generation to generation, ramped up in a big way with the publication of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species in 1859. Now, this, of course, led to some great advancements, but also some darker ones, most notably eugenics. Eugenics is a political ideology That emerges in the 19th century that uses these new ideas of genetics to promote the idea that if animals can be bred and foods can be bred, we can shape nature to our will. If those things are true, which they are, Mm -hmm. then why can't we do the same for humans? That's Adam Rutherford, geneticist and author of the book Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. The folks over at NPR's daily science podcast, Shortwave, spoke to him recently. And we'd love to share that conversation with you today. He and Shortwave's Rebecca Ramirez talk about how the history of eugenics can be felt all around us today.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV isn't just good, it's brilliant, with exceptional television from around the world. Their romances are more charming, their mysteries cozier, their noirs more gripping, and their comedies cleverer. More clever? Oh, you get it. Acorn TV is brilliant stories told brilliantly. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. So, in a nutshell, Acorn TV. Brilliant. This urge to formalize and systematize the selective breeding of people emerges from a specific political climate.
0: There's a very tumultuous socio-political atmosphere, there's industrial revolutions, there's huge urbanization of cities as they expand, and there's lots of immigration from from the expanding empires. This is, this, is, this is a time when Britain is at its sort of imperial peak. In America, you've got a slightly different but very similar situation where mass immigration at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century is just happening by the millions every year. And it becomes part of, eugenics becomes part of this sort of overall perceived threat of immigrants coming in and mm. uh, the decadent middle classes of, of people in America already are, they're not having enough children, whereas the immigrants are having loads of children. At this time, it's a lot of Italians and, and, um, and Irish immigrants, but also descendants of the enslaved. Um, so African-Americans. And so there's this perceived threat that we're going to be replaced, that the, the ruling powers are going to be swamped, I'm using the language of the time, mm-hmm. by immigrants. Um, and, and eugenics gets really, really vigorously adopted as a means of f- pushing back against that. It's an idea which is sort of bolted onto science but actually isn't very scientific. Mm-hmm.
1: And as you point out in the book, there's so much to this history. There's so much to cover. Could you just thread the needle a little bit more for the rest of the U.S. story of eugenics?
0: The first thing is that you've you got, you got to address this guy, Charles Davenport, who's mm-hmm. the sort of Galton equivalent. Charles Davenport is an American biologist. And in the 1890s, he meets Galton in London and comes back to America and becomes obsessed with eugenics. And so he sets up the Eugenics Records Office in Cold Spring Harbor, upstate mm-hmm. New York. And it's funded by some of those sort of gilded age, uh, the first wave of those mega philanthropists, so the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation. And the intention is to do basic research on, on inheritance in humans, but also to spread the word. So they go out to rural so sort of county fairs agricultural fairs in places like Iowa and, and and Kansas and so they say things like you know you, you guys are judging the frisian cows and the holstein cows but you should also be judging the joneses and, the, and and the smiths and you can understand how good genes and bad genes flow through families and they therefore you have a pivot on which you can leverage eugenic selection and in america They took it on vigorously. Um, The first state, Indiana, passed eugenics laws in 1907. 31 other states did over the course of the 20th century. And our estimates are that somewhere like 80,000 women and men were sterilized against their will over the course of the 20th century. With one state being the most vigorous adopter. And whenever I ask students or audiences this, no one has ever got it right. And the answer is California. Wow. California is the most vigorous adopter of eugenics, maybe accounting for half of the people who were sterilized against their will. And there's lawsuits in Canada and in California about that all women, in, mostly in prisons, mostly African-American or indigenous American women who've been sterilized, without their knowledge in the last in the 21st century. So this is not just our history, this is our present.
1: So, you know, you ask the question, does eugenics work? It does not. Why does it not work? Why does the idea of controlling for something like intelligence or alcoholism or schizophrenia not work?
0: The reason I can say with confidence that the ideas behind the historical sort of protocols for eugenics wouldn't work and didn't work is because we don't understand how genetics works. Now I'm saying that as someone who is a geneticist, right? But when, if politicians or journalists talk about this kind of stuff, and more and more entrepreneurs who are interested in the new reproductive technologies that come with right, in the post-human genome world, when they say, "Well, we kind of do know how this works, and we should probably act on this," and that's when I'm thinking, "Ah, oh, this is the, all right. This this is how historical make mistakes." happen. Mm-hmm. We don't really understand the genetics of eye color. We understand the basic genetics of some diseases that tend to have a sort of single gene cause, but we don't really understand them. When it comes to things like, like complex diseases or complex traits like behaviors or intelligence or diseases like, you know, hypertension or schizophrenia or mm-hmm. things like that, we are years, maybe decades away from having a sophisticated understanding of those types of, of traits in humans. You know, at the very beginning of this conversation, I said genetics is a really young science, mm. but, but studying families and inheritance is a very old practice, and that's where that conflict lies, because science is not here to reaffirm what you already think you know. It is there to disabuse you of your preconceptions. Mm-hmm. It is, science is the opposite of common sense, which sounds like an insult, but actually it's a best compliment because common sense tells us all sorts of stuff which is just not true. Like, I don't know, the earth is flat or the sun goes around the earth. Those are things that, would, were, that were corrected by decent scientific practice.
1: Right. And, and eugenics has been aimed at a range of things, poverty, illnesses, intelligence, criminality even, and uh, it's... It's used for population control um, and birth control specifically is interesting because on the one hand, you know, thinking of women's birth control, it's a case where states have forced people to be sterilized. And uh, Margaret Sanger was a reproductive rights leader in the U.S., but was also a member of the American Eugenics Society. Um, but at the same time, birth control, it gives people choices about their reproduction. It can be pretty complicated, and we can't just fully write off all aspects of these things because of things like women's rights.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And the repercussions of that and the legacies of those conversations are very much part of our present. The Supreme Court Judge Clarence Thomas, when Roe v. Wade was overturned earlier this year, he cited eugenics as being uh, part of the sort of whole conversation about abortion rights and that abortion was a tool of eugenics. Now when when he said that, it was an incredibly simplified and a little bit historically inaccurate. But he's not wrong in the sense that that Margaret Sanger was interested and, and the other sort of Planned Parenthood founders also in the UK. Mary Stopes is the equivalent in, in the UK and she was a she was a horror. I mean a real mm-hmm. Hitler supporting Nazi Anti-Semites. Right. Now you know we we don't remember that history very well because now she's associated with reproductive rights for women and the, the clinics that bear her name are for the the medical autonomy for for women. Um, so again, this is like a conversation where that we need to have. And we need to be much, much less partisan in having this conversation because history is super complex. Mm-hmm. We've got to be able to have grown-up conversations about our history and the repercussions and the legacy of those histories, which are because they're with us today.
1: Yeah. And and so having worked in this field of genetics for so long and now having written this book, does this all read to you as a cautionary tale of of how ideas, small academic ideas can balloon and become normalized? I mean, do you see parallels between the scientific advancements now and when genetics was just coming about?
0: Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, that really what is exactly what it is. There's a line I use at the beginning of the book, which is that we learn our history to inoculate ourselves mm-hmm. uh, against it being repeated. And what I'm most fascinated by is that pathway. Mm-hmm. A, a little footnote in a book in the 1880s in, in London, an obscure and really quite dull academic book.
1: And, and we should say that book is Francis Galton's Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development.
0: And within 60 years, you've paved the pathway to Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And that is the pathway that we I can't anticipate uh, without recognizing, without understanding the history of how it's happened before. So that's that's the cautionary tale aspect to it.
1: Thank you very much for talking to us. This is an enormously important topic that um, you just brought it to to the present for me mm. and a lot of people on the team in a way that it hasn't been.
0: So nice to talk to you. Thank you for this opportunity.
1: Yes, thank you.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com/slash commercial.
1: Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit SAA slash NPR and save an additional $200.